I don't believe in no one's scenarios. Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. We have a great show lined up for you today. Uh, We're talking about how to avoid failing the data scientist interview take-home exams. What you need to know to get hired as a PhD into a data scientist role. Uh, With us today we have Shobert Mazanati and we also have Casey Hemmington. We're going to jump in with them and talk about what you can specifically do to set yourself up for success getting hired into your first or next data scientist role in industry. Let's jump in now. Now We're going to bring on a panel of data scientists to talk about this exciting career track. For those of you who are wondering what you do in this career track and how it's different from other careers for PhDs. So with that, I'm going to bring on Abba and Rubenka, Ruchira, and they're going to talk to us a little bit about this data scientist role. So great to see you on. Hi, Abba. Been a while. Good to see you. I know. Hi, Isaiah. How are you? Doing very well. And Rubenka, how are you doing? I think. All right. Can you hear me now? I can. Thank you. All right. Great. Yeah. I'm doing well. How are you? Doing very well. And uh, Ruchira, good to see you. Hi. Hello. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. So you're all data scientists and we have a lot of attendees here, you know, who have, just like all of you, they really want to get into this career track, but there seems to be a lot of confusion. The data scientist job title, right, can mean a lot of different things. And I think most of them understand that you have to analyze data, but they might not understand what you do in terms of communicating with stakeholders. Uh, they may not understand uh, the different things that you have to do in terms of working with the team or the project management aspects, how much uh, experience you have to have in certain uh, programming languages and so forth. So what I thought I could ask all of you is, is really hitting on the core of what the data scientist syndicate teaches is what were the gaps you had in your knowledge about the data scientist role before you got hired into it? And then after being a data scientist for a while, uh, what did you learn? So if you could go back and talk to yourself before you were a data scientist, what would you tell yourself? What were the gaps in your knowledge? And I'll start with you, Abba, and maybe just introduce yourself and the position and company you're with now to start. Yes, absolutely. So I uh, just wanted to say that I'm super excited to be back. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, like uh, most of you, I have a life sciences background. So my PhD is from South Dakota in uh, biomedical sciences. And my postdoc is from Northwestern, uh, also in reproductive endocrinology. And uh, then I was a pharmaceutical science- scientist for about uh, four years. So I made biosimilars, I developed bioassays for that. So very hard for research and development. And uh, then I really thought that, you know, I, uh, due to my personal situation, having a toddler, I needed to transition to something that uh, allowed me to use a laptop instead of being in the lab for 16 hours. Mm. So uh, that's when I started thinking about the data science uh, domain. And uh, right currently, I'm in the IT healthcare sector, and uh, my team consists of uh, people who are data scientists, data analysts, architects, uh, financial strategy um, modeling people, the people who are experts in machine learning and artificial intelligence, and people like myself who are subject matter experts who work with all of them and keep the team together. Uh, So uh, currently what I do is um, I use software tools, mostly um, all the data scientists build them using Python and R uh, and other languages. And then uh, I help them understand why this drug works a certain way or why this disease is not deadly, but yet important. Uh, And then we build models to predict um, if this clinical trial would be successful or how can we change the design, or what is the probability of success, and, and so on, depending on the client's uh, use case. So yes, please feel free to contact me. My gap, um, what Isaiah asked, my gap was uh, filled 
by uh, on-job training. Mm. So when I joined my current company, uh, I took uh, preliminary courses in uh, Python, R, as well as just a general data scientist course. And of course, uh, the syndicate helped me because we had a good network of people Mm. who answered my questions. So that's how I uh, filled my job, um, job and gap. <laughs> thank you, Abba. Well, please thank Abba for sharing her experiences and congratulations on your success, Abba. And I think that's something that a lot of you uh, have a concern with. Are, do you have to know everything when you get hired into the, into the role? You do not. You will learn on the job. Uh, a big part of the data scientist syndicate too is helping you understand those programming languages, whether it's R or Python, the different packages, libraries, there's an entire course uh, multiple courses in the syndicate on that. Um, but you don't have to know it all to begin with. You can get hired into a data scientist role uh, and learn on the job. In fact, you have to. Every job is different. Every company is different. Some of them will have their own uh, unique software programs and their own unique ways of doing things. So that's an important point. Thank you, Abba. Uh, same question to you, Rubenka. You know, what were the, if you could go back and talk to yourself before you were working as a data scientist, what would you say? What were the misconceptions that you had, the gaps in your knowledge, the, the concerns that you would try to uh, alleviate? Yeah, so I come from an engineering background. Um, I graduated from Duke with the energy data analytics degree. And in my current position at ITRON, um, so one thing that kind of surprised me was the heavy reliance we have on SQL. Um, so, you know, when you think data science, it's more like, oh, Python and R. And of course, those are really great tools to have. Uh, but SQL is kind of an underrated tool. And I'm glad to see on the DSS platform so much discussion going on because that's really, you know, when you have a peer network, that's what you realize. Yeah, you can read about a ton of stuff, but when you start talking to people from the industry, um, it helps for you to realize, you know, what are the gaps. The other gap was the business acumen. As an engineer and a scientist, sometimes my interest is often in the most difficult math problems. But as a data scientist, you also really need to have a good business acumen because oftentimes you will be talking to people from sales and managers and people who are interested in selling the product. Um, so those were the two gaps. The way I filled it was kind of similar to Abha. I did have quite a bit of on-the-job training. Um, peer network certainly helps and yeah, I keep saying it. So CSA network has certainly been great for me. I've been able to contact people, been able to talk with them. Um, online courses help, but I think having a curated collection of subject matters to explore is really crucial because we can get lost and kind of trying to identify what you need to know, what you don't need to know. Um, and yeah, and projects as well. Uh, I would certainly stress instead of getting, you know, accumulating certificates through online courses, do something with your work, you know, learn a little bit and then come up with your own projects, post it on GitHub. So that fills the gap a little bit. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Rubenka. Congratulations on your success. And just a couple of things to point out, no matter what your PhD background is, you've dealt with data information. You've had to, you've had to analyze um, large data sets before, large amounts of information. That is the leverage you have to get into this role. But your ability to translate that technical data, that technical information into business data, business information is very valuable. Um, it's a key transferable skill. Uh, so I think for all of you, you have to know that no matter your background, if you're here, you can do this, but networking is key. The reason the data scientist syndicate, like all of our advanced programs, has the network is so that you can crack into this industry by talking to people currently working as data scientists, including those that you uh, see here on the panel. Um, Understanding what you have to do during the hiring process, what you have to do afterwards, getting a GitHub account and starting to build projects and practice, learning SQL, which is in the program, not just taking these courses on LinkedIn or otherwise where it's a few different videos, and that's it, but actually having instructors who you can ask questions to, quizzes and exams and, and a living, breathing program that continues to get added to, especially in this field that moves so quickly. Uh, so great points from Rubenka and she had to go back to work real quick. So uh, if, if you just told her thank you, we will pass it on. Ruchira, thank you for waiting. How are you? I'm good. Yeah. Thanks I'm for so being here. Yeah, me too. Very excited to have you. And thanks for sharing. I know you're a data scientist. Maybe you could just introduce yourself and the the position you're in now, and then talk to us a little bit about what you would go back to your former self and say about the role now that you have experience. Sure. So my current position is with a pharmaceutical company. 
a cancer pharmaceutical company, and I just transitioned into a new role in the company as a discovery and innovation scientist. Uh, but I started here as bioinformaticist. So I have a background in bioinformatics and microbiology, but I had no background in cancer. Mm -hmm. So when I joined this company, they brought me on because this, they deal with a lot of clinical trials data and they had so much data and no way to sift through it or to analyze it. So they wanted someone who had the knowledge of managing data and like curating it and making sure that it's analyzed on time. So they can talk to, um, sites and um, medical monitors to give mm -hmm. them perfect information, right? So going back to your major point of how important SQL is, because um, I had only worked with SQL a little bit during my um, PhD, but then when I came on, I did some more projects um, and it turns out that that was my biggest help because I knew some SQL and I knew Python. I was able to manage all their data in a very small amount of time because otherwise you're just dealing with Excel the whole time, right? And right. there's so much data, you get confused. I was working with nine trials at the same time. So you cannot remember everything about them. So I created a database and then I used Tableau. I attached Tableau to SQL for data visualization. So that really helped me because I think that when, we, when I was transferring uh, to this new job, two things I didn't have was that I could talk about my skills that how I can learn and deliver in a short amount of time being a PhD. And then second, that it's very easy for me to move from one skill to another because I do projects with them. So I take up a project, try that skill and then pass it on. That's exactly what I learned. Mm -hmm. And then the good thing was because I was able to talk mm -hmm. to them and by going through all the webinars through Cheeky Scientist, and the business acumen we get to learn here and how to present our skills, I was able to convince them to put me, to transition me into a position where now I deal with several data scientists. So wow. I work with four, I work for two different, three different teams from two different countries. So I work with people in Tokyo, guiding them how and uh, when they can bring in innovation to their scientific programs. Then I work with people in India and then we are creating a new platform for everyone, for all of the scientists and the major company to use. Um, Takeaway for me was don't just learn a skill, apply that skill into a project. We can find several projects on DSS platform. They have a very good defined list of sort, uh, courses you can take on Coursera. So keep learning, don't sit idle, keep talking to people. I learned all this on job as well as talking to people on LinkedIn. And what do you think should be my next step? So great. I have to yeah. Say. And, and the, uh, the, again, the networking piece coming front and center. Um, there are already hundreds and hundreds of PhDs in the data scientist syndicate to help all of you. The, the limiting kind of factors you'll have in your head, because we work with PhDs on this all the time, are number one, that you don't know the right programming languages, et cetera. You can learn those in the program and certainly on the job. You don't have to be masters of them. You just have to be willing to learn them. That's the key. You heard that from both of our panelists who are, who are here right now. Um, and then beyond that, you also have to be able to work on your communication skills. And this is a big part of the data scientist syndicate that a lot of other programs don't teach you. They'll give you some little course on SQL, whatever else. Great. Now you can be a data analyst. If you want to be a data scientist and get paid the higher level that a data scientist gets paid, you've got to be able to communicate to key stakeholders. You've got to translate technical data to that business data, which is that big business acumen component that Ruchira is talking about and that ABBA alluded to as well. Um, things like cost of goods sold, it could be financial data, whatever it is, you have to develop uh, your business acumen, your business nomenclature. Uh, crucial and a big part of the program. So thank you, Ruchira. ABBA, thank you. Good to see you. Good to see both of you. Thank Please you. thank Ruchira in the chat box and thank our panel, if you have not yet, for coming on and just paying it forward. They know there's a lot of demand for data scientists right now, um, but most of you just are invisible. You don't know the process. You don't have a network. And uh, that's what the Data Scientist Syndicate will help you with. Thank you. Okay, so with that, we're going to bring on our senior program leader, Chaubert. Very excited to have him on, Senior Data Scientist, Senior Program Leader for the Data, data Scientist Syndicate. Hi, Chaubert. Hey, Isaiah. How's it going? It's going well. How'd the move go? Or are you still well, moving? 
I know I, I'm in a I'm just sitting somewhere without anything in my background, so that would say it went well. Thank you. Uh, I just want to make sure is the is my voice good? All right, perfect. Everything sounds perfect. Yeah, so re- great to hear from a panel. You know, I think uh, uh, seeing the excitement of people getting into this role and the two things we talked about that you say all the time in the program, they're going to train you on the job. You got to be willing to learn, and then that business acumen component talking to stakeholders anything to add to those two things in particular before we start so uh, there was a lot of gold nuggets there so like the importance of sql that everyone bypasses and a lot of times you fail the uh, even the interview process because you never expected people to ask you sql questions the business acumen and the one other thing that was very interesting for me was look how diverse the backgrounds of even our small sample of three people from the uh, from yes. our own kind of tricky scientist team is and everyone is from different backgrounds and they're working on different things some of us are using our let's say phd knowledge to drive something else with our analytics tools so for example clinical trial success you definitely need to have um, some you know background knowledge in the field but then some of us are working in things that are has no connection uh, for example Casey works on e-commerce without having a PhD in e-commerce yeah. or marketing so right. that's I think the, uh, some of more inspiring points that I would like to emphasize yeah great point and a big part of the program talks about data scientist roles in those different sectors thanks to you whether it's uh, IT or e-commerce or finance or manufacturing um, all of you are very valuable. You have the ability to analyze the data. That's really the most, that's the hardest part, I would say, outside of just a willingness to learn new things, which you have to learn very quickly uh, in this role. So um, let's talk about getting into this role and actually designing a strategy. So I'll ask you, know, you the same question, Shobert, in a slightly different way. If you had to go back and talk to yourself before getting hired as a data scientist and guide, like, give yourself some advice on your job search, and actually creating a strategy, what would you say? Just high level. Sure. Uh, so one of the biggest things I did was I chased the technology at the beginning. So I was like, oh, I would keep reading these new job descriptions. And one of them says this today, it says Python. The other one says R. The other one said Scala. And I was just overwhelmed trying to learn a little bit about this, a little bit about that, a little bit about that. And then I, I just like felt and I was not going anywhere. Um, I have an early kind of interview that I did with you, Isaiah, right after my first transition basically to industry. And the biggest help came from one comment that one of uh, the people that I talked uh, who was like a data scientist, she basically told me that don't follow the technology, follow the principles. So stats is not going to change ever. Uh, Mathematics is not going to change ever. So just go and pick one programming language instead of just cherry picking different things from different places. So I would, if I had to go back, I would say talk to people who are more experienced because they have made a lot of mistakes that you don't need to do and follow the basics rather than the technologies. Yeah, I like that. Don't chase the technologies. You can learn those on, on the job. Um, your PhD is a doctor of learning. Uh, and especially learning on the technical side. Now, one thing you heard us talk about the panel a lot is kind of the data scientist role versus the other role. And we like to compare it versus a data analyst. Um, Why do data scientists get paid more? What does a data scientist have to do over a data analyst or, you know, maybe a a statistician, et cetera? Um, So the biggest difference for me and, that's mainly the biggest reason that they're hiring PhDs that are not even from computer science is that they want someone to come in and solve a business problem, a business problem that may they may know about it, but they don't know how to formulate it or the business problem that they don't even know they have that opportunity or that problem. So they want someone who is who knows how to think critically and who knows how to, first of all, consume a lot of information in a very short amount of time and then start producing results very uh, relatively in a relatively short time and you could hear it with the panelists they all were even amazed that they had that skill set because a lot of times as phds when in in our training we always see all these like super geniuses that we think they're super geniuses in our field and uh, we are self like criticizing ourselves a lot so we don't even know that we have that uh, kind of problem solving and we have that I that structured framework of thought. Uh, 
which is mm -hmm. one of the biggest assets that you have. I would say the data analyst is the person that they give that person the problem to solve and it goes mm -hmm. and brings that one number that they need. A data scientist is a person that has to frame the problem into what is needed for a decision to be made and then goes and searches and brings back the goal. So it's all about how much business impact you can make. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll be a little bit more blunt. If you want to work side by side with somebody with their bachelor's or master's as a data analyst, you can. But if you want to get into a higher level, uh, more competitive career, uh, you have to make that jump. And you have to see the value of transferable skills and business acumen skills in addition to the technical skills. Um, of course, a, a job search as a data scientist has some key principles, some key things you have to do. Of course, a LinkedIn profile, resumes, a job referral network, people who can you can interview, right, for informational interviews to find out more about certain positions and companies and what it's really like. Ask the questions that are going to resonate with you. It's a big part of the data scientist uh, program. But then the, those three types of skills, technical, transferable, business, you'll be trained on those in the syndicate as well. Um, what we want to look at here, though, is just some examples. Any of these that jump out at you, Chaubert, in terms of, okay, LinkedIn profile, resume, what kind of things can I talk about? Obviously, machine learning, uh, cloud certifications, you know, di you know different, um, you know, connecting with people online now, given everything that's happening. I know that you interview some new data scientists before they're hired. What suggestions do you have based on this or otherwise? So uh, that's actually a very good point. So uh, networking is big. I mean, anyone who is part of any CSA program knows that uh, networking can be a very big aspect, but it's a lot harder for some people to do it right now because it's a little bit harder to just like email someone and say, hey, can I have a Zoom meeting with you? Um, Whereas before, maybe you could have said, let's go grab a cup of coffee. So I get that. So that's one aspect that you can, you should start putting more of your presence online. One of the easy ways to do that is a, either join some of the groups or teams like Cheeky Scientists, for example, Data Science Association, sorry, Syndicate, because that program, for example, we have um, hundreds of members that you are already getting connected and then the second part of it is that your linkedin presence is another way to get those, to those networking follow who is who are the thought leaders who are in places that you want to be and start kind of asking questions a lot of times you may not hear back but a lot of you just need two people to answer your question it's, you don't need hundreds of them and about showcasing your skills is that a lot of times if you say i was a phd in let's say physics i would look at your resume and you don't put anything that shows you can do data science. Why should I trust that you know some of the basics that you need to come to this kind of this other phase in your career? So the best way is to start kind of like taking some Kaggle projects, doing some, uh, you know, uh, side projects or passion projects and put them, showcase them on GitHub. So you need to build some portfolio that when you write, give me your resume, you put a link and I would look at it and I would say, oh, this is a nice thing you did. I never thought yeah. about, let's say, which beer people like and kind of make a recommender system out of it. So there are all these things that you can do to show and prove that you know more than the other person. Absolutely. Uh, and, and again, the, the data scientist syndicate doesn't just teach you what a data scientist does day to day. Um, you will learn that. You will learn everything from onboarding to what to do after that career. But importantly, you're going to learn how to specifically transition into this competitive career track. Now, you can see here, these are the different points that you'll be trained on in the Data Scientist Syndicate. And what we're really going to focus on today is the take-home assignment. We'll talk a little bit about other types of interview questions, but this is a key piece. You heard Chaubert mention GitHub. I mentioned it earlier, just as an example of building a portfolio um, in order to get hired. It's not hard to do. It might seem complex. You hear the word portfolio and you get concerned, but it's, it's very simple. And in the private community that's active, daily 24 7 in the dss community um, you'll have a chance to do that and to share and i'm just curious for those of you that said you want to get a data scientist job how many of you have not yet started building a portfolio or have not yet created a github account type in me if you have yet to do that 
Um, this is something that you will be uh, held accountable to in the program, and it's not as hard as you might think. It's a great way to start learning, it's, and it can be very fun. So the take-home assignment is what we're going to jump into, and we have some examples here. First of all, Chaubert, just defining it. What is the take-home assignment? Why do uh, people have to do it to get into a data scientist role usually? So uh, one of the problems that the data scientists have is a lot of times you don't have, uh, they want to test to see can you solve a problem, and also can you do some technical, let's say, you know, mm. clean the data, process the data, and get some insights out of something fast. So they want to see how good you are at at doing this and how good you are at not just keep going down only one hole and just confuse yourself and everyone with the analysis. So one way of kind of doing this is to give you a open-ended business problem, usually like for and a data set, a sample data set that uh, then you can, they sometimes put some guiding questions. For example, apart from whatever insight you can find, please find what is the average time that an Uber driver has to wait between two, um, uh, two rides, for example. Right. Um, so it's heavily technical, but the catch is the way you present the data um, so they, they can check basically your coding, they can check if you're kind of commenting well, they right. can check if you're check, you know, so there is that technical aspect. But the other gotcha moment is that they want to see how good you are at prioritizing things. So did you just look at everything to see what's available before going down into one specific thing that you find more interesting how much time did you spend on this did you ask some clarifying questions for example when you got the data set or the uh, the question itself and the biggest second part of it is that a lot of times you have to present your results to a group of uh, data scientists and non-data scientists so there are let's say directors that you have to talk to so now it comes about business oriented uh, mindset. Can I translate my technical findings into something uh, a bit non-technical and still be accurate? Uh, yes. Well, let's go through, you know, I have a, let's go through this example here. Um, just, just one that we've, uh, we've seen occur as an as a example take-home assignment, just so you guys can all see what it might look like, right? So it's a, a take-home assignment, a challenge. Companies have different names for it. Uh, this is what it would look like. You know, a, a data scientist at XYZ noticed that a Spain-based users have a much higher conversion rate than any other Spanish-speaking country. Um, they give you some additional details, and then you have to confirm that the test is actually negative, the old version of the site with just one translation across Spain and Latin America performs better. Explain why that might be happening. Um, so this is that summary portion that, that Chaubert is talking about. And if you, you know, if you identified what was wrong, design an algorithm that would return false if the same problem is happening in the future and true if everything is good and the results can be trusted. Very common, right, Chaubert? So like here's details, the problem. Uh, you know, first an analysis of what's happening and then some something uh, they have to actively do to create. But you're saying the secret part of the test is prioritizing, clarifying in the notes and the summary that could be understood by non-technical people. So let me just show you one gotcha moment in this particular example. Uh, it says confirmed that the test is actually negative and th that the translations are different or perform better. What does the translation quality mean? So that's your first task that you have to do here, to come up with a metric that actually captures this and relates to the business question that there is there. So you have to first now define what is the problem uh, that you want to solve. So yeah, that, that's what people do usually. They come and say, hey, are customers happy? What is a custom happy customer mean? Like. There's no two or three number there. And you can't go and ask everyone, are you happy or not? And aggregate those scores. So you coming up with those things is the first thing that they actually test. Can you make a business problem into a mathematical problem to then solve? So that's the first step. And then the second step is, yeah, you find a solution. Are you using the right, let's say, statistical technique in here? Are you forming different hypotheses? That's how science works, right? You mm. form, like, form different hypotheses and then try to test them to see if the data supports them or not. And then are you, uh, are you good enough to come back and say, hey, there was nothing there? 
uh, I could not uh, statistically kind of make that decision and what is my next step? And are you good at then presenting this to the panel of, let's say, data scientists and non-data scientists and come and say, you know, there is this problem. I it's statistically significant, which means this, and you have to say it in a brief sentence so that the non-technical person understands and it's not too oversimplified so that the technical person would be like, you have no idea what you're talking about. So it's, it's that balance that you have to do and that, that's actually super helpful. Yeah, and I think the clarification, which is really important, it's like coming, you know, it doesn't matter how much work you do on an experiment or whatever your background is, if you don't have the right hypothesis, or if you haven't clarified the problem you're actually trying to solve. And this is something you can excel in, you just need practice, you just got to get reps in. And a big part of being in the data scientist syndicate is getting those reps in with people like Chaubert and others who can guide you. Um, so there's, there's the take home assignment. I do want to talk a little bit about the on-site interview process or, or the virtual, however it is. And specifically with the, the data scientist kind of track, you're going to talk to somebody uh, in terms of like a, maybe a, a phone screen, like an HR person, non-technical, but you're also going to have more of a technical or coding call. Let's just start there, Shobir. What are the differences between those two? Why do you do both for a data scientist role? Sure. Uh, one thing I want to add uh, before moving to this from the, the take-home exam part is that the time yeah. frame that you get to solve that problem is very different. You may get uh, 12, 24 hours, you may get three days, a week at most. And then the last piece is some, uh, I, one of the newest versions that I've seen is they give you the data uh, in the middle of your actually your on-site interview and you have 45 minutes to analyze the data and answer some questions and find wow. some insights and then you get 15 minutes to gather your thoughts and then you have to present it for 15 to 20 minutes to a panel of data scientists and non-data scientists so it can be really different wow. uh, now moving to the next step. So uh, one of the things that people want to know, as you heard, for example, a lot of people mentioned SQL is super important and a lot of people who are preparing for data science, they don't know. So they, there's a lot of candidates. For, for example, in my company, for a job posting for a data scientist, we may have like three, four, 500 candidates that are, wow. I would say 400 of them might look good on paper on, based on their resume or maybe 300 of them are, look good now the next step is uh, you get an on-site uh, sorry an, uh, basically a coding interview after you talk with hr so some people would get dropped that's basically uh, there are many platforms that people can use but it's very um, they would give you a clear question and then they would give you a uh, let's say a sample data set or um, Sometimes, for example, they will ask you, how can you calculate the average time spent on, on our app? So then you have a data set that shows the average, like people's interactions, you write a SQL code, a Python code, an R code. Normally, I have never seen any company to say, we are not, if you know Python and not R, we are not gonna hire you. There, I have never heard of that. So you can yes. choose even your language. And, and um, So that's the first part. That's the coding interview. During, if you pass that, during the on-site interview, some companies do still give you some coding exercises. We call them whiteboard. So now with Zoom days, they open, let's say, a... All oh, right, the whiteboard feature. Yep. Yeah, or a whiteboard feature and you just type things. Uh, the on-site interviews, uh, you, for example, a lot of companies have a mixture of one or two data scientists and one or two non-data scientists on the forum. So one of them would normally test you for cultural fit. The other one would uh, test you on your business acumen and problem solving. The other one tests you on, let's say, machine learning. And the other one may test you on statistics and uh, experiment design and coding. So there is, they want to make sure that they are getting someone who has the capability of first is clear in the way they are thinking, uh, which is the biggest asset that data scientists can have. And also yeah. both, can we put this person in front of a CEO later? Yeah, and I just want to dig into that a little bit deeper and we'll get to this executive component. I think there's a big business acumen component, even a project management component and this communication component, right? So great, you do the whiteboard, you know, real time answer. Um, but then they say, okay, well, why? Did, that's right, but why did you choose this? 
what, you know, what does this mean? How is this going to help the business? Why is this a struggle for some PhDs? Yes. So um, there are two things that I found uh, sometimes PhDs struggle. Uh, the number one thing is that uh, a lot, sometimes we get tunnel vision. So we are really good at zooming in. That's yes. one of our biggest assets, to be honest, in some sense. But at the same time, it can become problematic if you just zoom in and get tunnel vision and give the number and then not put it in the context of what was the problem that I was solving even. So let's say CVS is a $70 billion uh, company, right? Etna CVS. And then... Uh, then I ask, we solved through a case. The person said what models they're using, they're technically, they were really good, right? That they can tell why they use this. By the way, if you just take online courses without really reading yourself or without really trying to do things, and you just throw a random algorithm name out at the interviewer, it's a fair game for the interviewer to go and ask, so why this one? Mm. What in your data look? made you kind of choose this kind of algorithm. So yes, the, the, there are these approaches and questions that people ask to see who has real experience versus have just heard some buzzword. And then the next step is, let's say the person can do all of those things and then tell me that, yeah, this project is gonna save $20,000 for the company. Hmm. And then I'm like, so should we do this project then? And they're like, yeah, it's $20,000. You know, it's a salary of a PhD probably. And, and what do you think is my response? We are a $70 billion company. Do you think we don't have a bigger problem to solve here that would bring more than 20,000 and pay someone 140K to solve a $20,000 problem? Does it make sense? So that's that business acumen. So, and by the way, folks, it's one of the things that scared me a lot when I wanted to do this transition because I'm like, I don't know business. I've been in academia for all my life. You know, what should I do? Yes. It's a lot easier than you think. It's a lot easier. You just have to go get some experience, try to read a little bit more about some of the lingo and also try to always take one step back and ask yourself, why am I solving this problem? And I think that's the biggest, uh, some of the biggest misses that I've seen in PhDs. The other thing mm. is the pace. The pace is a lot faster in, uh, in, uh, in basically industry versus academia. And you don't solve problems just to solve problems. Yes. Because they're interesting. You just have to show that you're driving value. There's a rule of thumb that says, if you're getting paid, let's say X dollars, uh, your salary and your bonus and all of your uh, compensation package, you have to bring five to 10 times that as a value. Yes, which is hard to uh, imagine that scale as a PhD. But again, when you're working with a company that makes hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars a year, or those are partnering with your company, uh, that's, it's a small fraction. It becomes percentages. And that's what you have to look at. Uh, you, you mentioned this idea of structure, the pace, priority, which is all under the umbrella of project management. So what did you have to learn as a data scientist in terms of project management and managing your team, et cetera, and, and maybe talk about the importance of project management as a data scientist? So uh, that's a very good point. So a lot of times in PhD, you say, all right, uh, I know I'm almost done with my thesis and the project, but... I can solve this one extra thing and publish another paper. So instead of graduating in four years, let's just graduate in five years, mm. which is fine. But in business, that's not how it works. So the way we usually have to do things, for example, in our team is very agile in the sense that if I can build a baseline model that can capture 20% of the opportunity, I should build that in two weeks and push it into production and then spend another two months making instead of 20, improve my model to be, have a better model and kind of perform improve the performance. So that's something that a lot of times PhDs struggle. The project manager is, management is actually very big because you are not gonna be dealing with one project and only one project. You are probably dealing with many projects, at least 
two or three at the same time. You also have to sometimes even say, which problem am I going to solve for this quarter? And you have to know how to make that prioritization and work with other stakeholders and your manager to solve that. And on, the, on top of that, it's, if you're not good at this, it's very easy to just overwhelm yourself and end up working, I don't know, 18 hours a day, seven days a week. So it's because you say yes to everything that comes to you instead of saying, hey, I don't have time for this anymore. I say no. I, I can yeah. prioritize this versus that or who to ask from. And lastly, the more you progress in your career path. So right now I'm kind of uh, in a lead position in my current, uh, current job. And now I have to, now I have like a team of five, six people that I have to prioritize what should they work on in, instead of kind of m try to code everything myself. So it's, you become more of a project manager quarterback or, uh, a lot of times rather than just purely technical sit behind your monitor and type codes. Exactly. And uh, the business acumen component, the project management component is crucial. Uh, okay, so let's jump into the, the portfolio part. Uh, we talked about this a little bit with our panel. What are they expecting with the portfolio? Uh, you mentioned like annotation, et cetera, but let's dive into uh, the portfolio by itself, uh, independent of the take-home exam. Yes. Uh, so a lot of times they want to see a bunch of projects that you have. Some, a, a, they want to, you want to kind of know who is the fake faker and who is the real data scientist. <laughs> so who is the person that actually has the passion to go, you know, uh, analyze something that is close to their heart. For example, they want to know how the COVID is is spreading, they want to do their own analysis. There are some projects related to, let's say your own current PhD that has some data analytics uh, in it and you can put like, yeah, this is how I did it. This is the code. This is the analytics uh, or statistical method that I use. So they want to see who has done something, who has got their hands dirty. It doesn't matter if it's not the most ambitious project of all time. Uh, it doesn't need to be that, but they want, we want to know who is doing what. So let me give you an example. Uh, two uh, data scientists inter interviewed from the same uh, boot camp, these like data science boot camps that you hear. Yes. And both of them had worked on the same problem. And then I looked at the GitHub and the GitHubs were the same. So because it was a team project, we ended up inter. So then based on the GitHub details, I would start asking questions. One of them, actually was the one, the one that had done the project. The other one was the one that had done some like Excel, uh, some, uh, sorry, PowerPoint creation and stuff. So yes. immediately based on asking questions about their own analysis, it became clear that do they really know what they're talking about or do they just uh, are faking? And that's what you wanna know. By doing, uh, putting things on GitHub, you show a track record of progress, which is good for yourself and good for the person who is trying to judge if you're a good person. One thing that you heard from the panelists was that everyone said you, you're gonna need to learn a lot on the job and you're gonna mm. need to continuously learn. What better place than looking at your GitHub and look at your code two years from now and see that, oh my God, I could have write this 20 times more efficient. Yes. So it's pretty good for you. And it also, it's the exact same thing is what uh, an interviewer look at. Yeah, well said. And this is just a snapshot of GitHub. And when it comes to building your portfolio, there's different types of projects you might want to show, right? And which is what we're, we're really setting up here. And, and in terms of those projects, uh, you know, three things you want to show in particular that you train on in the program. And I just thought we could touch on this before the top of the hour show bear. So those focused on data cleaning, storytelling, and on the customer. What, why these three in particular? So the first part is the reality of data science. You're not going to be building a lot of models in your lifetime. A lot of your pain point is actually build, uh, cleaning the data, making sure it says what it's supposed to say. There is no issue with it. Again, uh, I always make this uh, this comment that let's say if someone's cell phone, you turn off your cell phone and we are not seeing any data for you for three days, it does not mean, mean that our app is broken. It means that you have turned off your phone. So that's the first, that's why the data cleaning is 80% of data scientists time sometimes. The focus on the storytelling is 
can you zoom in and out? Can you zoom out and see what is the big problem I'm solving? Then zoom in and say, this is the thing I did. Then zoom out and put it in the right context. So that's the biggest thing. The last part is everything ties to business, in business to the money, right? So mm. who is bringing the money? Your customer. So when you're solving, and your customer can be both internal and external, by the way. You can be the client that the company serves, or it can be that specific business unit that came to you with a pain point and asked you to solve your pain point. So that's why these three things, if you keep showing them, they know that you have the right mindset. A lot of times the problem that people have in, uh, when interviewing PhDs is that, are they ready to make that transition from that academic mindset to be focused on other people's needs rather than just the interest in the problem for right. the sake of the problem? Like you said, just because it's right or it'll save 20,000, which is a positive result, doesn't mean it's worth, worth doing. Um, so, you know, trending topics to add to your portfolio. I know you talk about this more in, in uh, the data scientist syndicate. Uh, which of these might be of interest or which should you at least know when interviewing and which not so much? So the big thing I would say is uh, first learn the basics of uh, machine learning algorithms. So you don't need to uh, necessarily go and start with deep learning. Deep learning is very useful in many cases of image and uh, natural language processing, but majority of the data is stored in most businesses is structured data in tables in excel sheets if you may and that's what you want to focus on so learn the basic algorithms first and then expand to deep learning expand to more specialized image processing or computer vision or natural language processing so these are all sub segments of a bigger machine learning and then artificial intelligence is not only just machine learning but also it's reasoning under uncertainty it's search uh, so there's a lot of other things can go into it robotics you name it so uh, I would say focus on the basics, uh, the fundamentals, the fundamentals of machine learning, learn them properly, then it's easy to expand to other uh, aspects. Can you walk us through this and really help us understand a little bit more about this particular topic just to give us an advantage in the job market? Yes. So defining the problem uh, from high level and also defining it into a mathematical problem is the first step. Without that, you're not, you don't have anything to solve. The other thing is you have to start uh, focusing on uh, what is the metric that you are going to measure because without that, you're not a data scientist. You're just building models with no way of knowing if it's good or bad even. Right. The next step is, do I have the pieces of information that I need to answer this problem? So in order to want to know that, you go have to see what is the data assets of your company? Do you have everything you need or should you start collecting new data? Third is for the data that I have, you are starting to look, all right, what is, for example, the average age of my customers? How, what is the spread of their age? Like you start kind of like getting a feel of what's going on. A lot of times data analyst job stops with these kind of middle steps. The data scientist job that gets the big money is the first one, actually. The first state the problem correctly. Then uh, going to the fourth, you, in your exploration, you start kind of like uh, cleaning your data, you form some opinion about the data and then uh, do some data transformations. For example, normalize the values, make sure the age of someone is not a thousand dollars, thousand years because someone had made a typo. So clean the data. Um, then the last part is you start kind of like now building a model. For example, I want to predict um, who is which one of my patients is going to get worse in the next two years and mm -hmm. then i want to know what is the right thing to optimize because your machine learning can classify or predict a lot of things then you fine-tune the last piece of your model you document your code so that someone else can use it you communicate your solution with your internal team to make sure that everything is airtight then you communicate with the external teams to make sure that their business we call it sniff test. If a director comes and says, this does not make any sense because the average cost of the member is $500. How did you bring, how are you saving $2,000 here? So that sniff test shows if you have any flaw in your logic. And lastly, sometimes we deploy uh, the models in production, which means that someone else is going to use it. A lot of times this last step is being done by in 
by data engineers. Um, so data engineers are very similar as well, uh, but they're more into the computer science part of the, I think data science. So they, they try to make a product out of the model that you have built. So that, for example, if you open your Snapchat and take a picture and put a filter that would, you know, put a, I don't know, a Disney princess crown on your head, <laughs> that's basically a data engineering took the data scientist model and put it in production so that you can use it in an app. Great example. Wow. Lightning fast uh, through this. You will learn this and much more in the data scientist syndicate. Thank you again for being on the radio show and for providing your insights. This takes us to the end of this show. You can learn about this program and all of our programs at CheekyScientist.com. If you are new to your job search, you don't know which position's right for you, you can go to PhDsGetHired.com. That's plural, PhDsGetHired.com to learn more about our flagship program, the Cheeky Scientist Association that has helped thousands of PhDs around the world get hired. It'll train you on the basics of your job search and help you find the right position for you. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. I'm Isaiah Henkel, the founder of Cheeky Scientist and the creator of the Cheeky Scientist Association. I wanted to quickly tell you that memberships into the association are available to PhDs listening to Cheeky Scientist Radio by using the coupon code Cheeky Radio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com, P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll down to the orange membership button and click on it, then enter the coupon code Cheeky Radio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. That's Cheeky Radio, C-H-E-E-K-Y-R-A-D-I-O. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? Like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees, cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely you have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD-only job search training platform with multiple courses and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000-plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com. P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button, and click on it, and enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees, no recurring annual fees. Nobody else offers this. PhDsGetHired.com. Use the coupon code CheekyRadio. Remember your value as a PhD, and remember that knowledge is power, and your network is your net worth. <laughs>